and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Path 11 podcast. I have an amazing guest today, a guest who I actually met at the Afterlife Awareness Conference. I believe it was in Utah back in 2019 when we were still doing these conferences in person. His name is Phil Borges, and he is an amazing photographer, author, and filmmaker. And he shared with us some of his photography and his documentary called Crazy Wise, uh, which we're going to talk quite a bit about in our show today. And uh, it's just really amazing information. This is a podcast probably for anyone who has ever suffered with any type of mental health diagnosis. If you felt that you were crazy at some point, because maybe you might have been having some spiritual experiences. And uh, let me let you know a little bit more about or tell you a little bit more about Phil. Um, He has documented indigenous and tribal cultures for over 25 years. And he regularly presents at universities. He teaches workshops. He's spoken at multiple TED events. Um, His his photography is just phenomenal. Uh, His work has been exhibited in museums and galleries worldwide. He has hosted television documentaries on indigenous cultures and shamanism for Discovery and National Geographic channels. And he regularly presents at universities. His TED Talk has 4.2 million views, he was telling me already. Um, So it's definitely something we will put in the show notes for you to check out. And this is a subject near and dear to me. As many of you know, I am a licensed mental health therapist turned into a healer myself. I practice a lot of um, shamanic techniques. And I would say over the 20 years of being in mental health therapy, I've been moving away towards some of the clinical training that I've received and moving more into spirituality and many of the practices that indigenous cultures practice because I found that that is what was healing my people that were coming to me. So, Phil, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Well, thank you, April. You know, hearing your background, I'm I'm totally anxious to talk with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was it was actually when Mike and I were filming our documentaries about consciousness, and I really started to do more research about consciousness and different realities and different realms. And I remember speaking to someone um, who was an expert in the field of nuclear uh, physics and quantum physics. And uh, we started talking about like parallel realities and different dimensions. And my immediate thought went to people who were schizophrenic or had schizoaffective type disorder or people who were seeing visions or seeing dead people. And it made me stop in my tracks and look at the field that I was working in through a totally different set of eyes. And at the time I was working in a psychiatric hospital for children Mm. and there children that were having just regular grief reactions to people dying in their family. And they were speaking 
you know, to these people. And the first things that the psychiatric hospitals were doing were putting the children on psychiatric meds, you know, antipsychotics at like five, six, seven years old. They're on Risperdal, uh, Zyprexa. And I was just like, oh my God, what is happening here? This child's having a natural, normal grief reaction to the grandfather passing away. And of course he could see his grandfather because he's still in between two worlds at being at that age. So um, my, my practice really started to change when I started studying consciousness uh, a lot more. And it made me look at some of the mental health diagnoses and disorders. And your uh, documentary, Crazy Wise, uh, was so validating for me because they were, you know, exploring and talking about the DSM and how that was created. And it really, I think, can be detrimental in many ways if people begin to over-identify with these mental health diagnoses and then believe themselves to be broken in some way. So. Yeah. So I know I'm, I'm talking a lot here in the beginning. I'm just so excited. (laughs) Several things in my head. Uh, uh, First of all, you know, my father died when I was seven and I had by chance a spiritualist aunt move in with us at that time. And she asked me if I wanted to see my dad. But it totally freaked me out. I mean, I wanted nothing to do with it. I wasn't like the children you're, you were um, visiting. So anyway, my journey started probably there. Um, but it's gone through many iterations. And it eventually let me, led me to visiting these tribal cultures and learning how their healers were identified. And it was typically through having what we would call a psychotic experience, either hearing voices, seeing visions, personality changes, violent mood swings, what they describe that I now describe as a Kundalini experience, shocks going up their spine. So um, I just found it fascinating that their framing of what was going on was so different than ours. We would pathologize what they would call a special sensitivity. And then they would take the person and usually the young person, usually in their teens, early 20s, sometimes in adolescence, and take them to an initiation, which basically um, got them to be comfortable with these states. And unfortunately, at the time, I was just doing human rights work. You know, my whole focus, I was either there for Amnesty International or the UN or uh, another NGO. And this was just kind of a sidelight to me. And I didn't put the concentration on it I could have because I didn't learn a whole lot about what that initiation process was. And it wasn't until I did Crazy Wise, the film, that magically, while I was following a young man who had had a psychological crisis in his life, um, that somebody called us, uh, a young woman, an African-American woman from New York, who had been hospitalized and been very suicidal, who had started a shamanic initiation herself with a um, Sangoma, a South African shaman, that happened to be in Baltimore. So we got to follow her initiation. And, and, and so I got to learn a little bit more about what happens and what goes on in one of those initiations at that time. 
Yeah. Uh, and the documentary, it, you do follow a couple of different people. You have, um, you know, mental health therapists that are being interviewed, psychiatrists being interviewed and, you know, very, very interesting. But before we also get into that, I know when I was um, on your website watching some of the other trailers that you used to be a dentist. Yeah. Orthodontist yeah. for <laughs> 18 years. So what I love about that, too, is that, you know, it's like, here I am a mental health therapist, and then I ended up moving into the field of film as well, you know, and you're an orthodontist, and then you're like this phenomenal photographer, and then here you are, like, doing documentaries. So it's very inspiring for me. But how did you end up making that switch? And what was it that actually brought you into a lot of this activism work? Well, yeah, it was a long journey. I mean, I got interested in photography when I was in dental school because I lived, I was going to UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, which was in the Haight-Ashbury district. And it was in the mid 60s. And this whole cultural revolution was going on with the hippie movement. And I got a job of interviewing these, these kids on the street because they were starting to shoot drugs and there was a bunch of hepatitis going around and a psychologist wanted the information um, to see if they were um, would, would start using fresh needles if they were provided to them. And anyway, so I started doing portraits of the, of these kids. And, um, but anyway, I put that all aside did my practice, and I just had this restlessness inside of me that there was something else I wanted to do that whole time. And I eventually got very seriously into photography and decided that was what I wanted to do. But what led me into tribal and indigenous cultures was the fact that I had spent a lot of my childhood on a ranch in Utah, basically living a a subsistence life. I mean, we didn't go to the grocery store. We grew everything that we ate. We made our own soap. I mean, it was just like this very close relationship with the land and outdoors. And I've always, I, I mean, that was some of the most uh, delightful times of my childhood. And uh, so I'm, I, I was naturally drawn to people that lived like that. And these small indigenous and tribal communities are pretty much what we have left of people that live in that way. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful, too. And what what a great experience that you had to be able to live like that. I feel like since we're going through this pandemic, people are starting to come back to their own lands. I can't tell you how many friends of mine created gardens this summer, you know, to just grow their own food. And it seems like there's a little bit more of a coming back to that with with everything that we're going through with the pandemic. Slowing yeah, um, down. Yeah, that's what it's been for me. And I've been bouncing around the world for so long, but just coming home, being home with my wife and my dog and yeah, in our garden. And um, it's just been it's been nice. I mean, I know a lot of people are suffering and I feel so lucky that I can do this at this stage in my life anyway. 
Yeah. And, you know, you kind of bring up a a good point that there is a lot of suffering that's happening. There's a lot of anxiety, depression is what we would, you know, call it, maybe even some PTSD. And, um, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to their doctors and looking for maybe some medication uh, during this time to help manage their emotions. But what I really loved about your documentary and the people that you interviewed I forget the name of the gentleman, but he basically said everyone in the population experiences all of these things that are in the DSM. I mean, it yeah. is part of the human condition to yeah. feel emotion. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of it is is very normal and appropriate to the situations that people are going through. Yeah. I know Robert Whitaker, the um, journalist that uh, I think he's a Pulitzer Prize nominee. But anyway, he wrote a book that really started the movement of people coming around to saying, wait a minute, is this the way to go with these heavy medications? And anyway, his comment was, you know, most of the people that wrote the DSM have never read Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) We are an emotional creature and it's normal to have these emotions it is how they're framed and what meaning you can make out of them and your willingness to be with him that makes all the difference. Yeah. I'd like to, um, after being introduced to him through your film, I'd really like to read some of his books because he also made some comments. I'm going to paraphrase here. So people to not take it literal, but, um, was talking about how he wanted to actually, when he was investigating, wanting to know more of the proof, where did people find that people with depression had these lower serotonin levels and people with schizophrenia were, uh, had more dopamine levels in the brain. And when he went to these people, it was like, well, we didn't find that. We're just using that as a metaphor. And I was like, oh, you know, and, and now that's become just what people believe, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, I have low. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's really, really interesting. And unless you're probably out there doing your own research yourself and really educating yourself on a lot of this stuff, you'll just kind of take what maybe some of the medical professionals will recommend to you. And the other thing that I'll just say, and then I'll maybe move past my whole rant about psychiatric medication, is that it was also um, explained in your documentary, very much of what I've witnessed in 20 years of my practice of so many people being prescribed either antipsychotics or antidepressants. And guess what? Nothing has been alleviated. Nothing. They're still coming in. It doesn't treat the symptoms. It's not treating the trauma. And I've seen it helpful for very short periods of time, maybe four to eight weeks. And it's like, it goes up and then there's a plateau and then there's no effect. And I know that there's another researcher out there that says they're really not approved for long-term use because one of the main things is that they can create suicidal thoughts in people, you know? So it's kind of contradictive in some ways, but, um, but and, and in my work, when I began to work with people and look at them outside of a diagnosis and really look at them as the whole, and we began to delve into having them turn towards their feelings, having them turn towards their trauma, mm-hmm. looking at the things that they're scared of, pieces of them, like even energetically, be- they became whole again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I see that in the indigenous cultures and through some of the shamans that I've studied with, the ritual and ceremony is so beautiful and how the tribe 
uh, will hold the person in pain. And that was mentioned too in your documentary, how like some tribes will either sing this. Well, this is another example that I heard, but they can sing the soul back into people. Or if there is someone having a really tough time in the tribe, that they'll just be with them until they kind of move through whatever they're going through. And like with your research and the people that you've interviewed, they actually happen to turn into the healers of these tribes and the shamans and the visionaries. Yeah. Yeah. I know so many were very heady intellectual and you know, you know, the story about Rwanda and the genocide, don't you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And our therapists that were sent over there to help, you know, that story. Yeah, I think so. You could tell it again for the audience. We, we sent a group of therapists over there to help with all the trauma. You can imagine how that happened, where all these individuals had turned on one another, turned on their neighbors. They were killing each other. and they were t So the whole community, the whole country, totally traumatized. And so our therapists would go in and start our talk therapy through translators, which made it difficult, of course. But before long, I think it was just a month before the people were saying, the Rwandans were saying, this doesn't work, you know. What we need to do is sing and dance and get into ritual. And they had to send all the therapists home. So we tend to um, be a little more intellectually, rationally oriented, trying to face it that way or face it with medications, which do just suppress the symptoms. Um, and that can be very valuable in the beginning, in a crisis stage. I didn't meet anybody, and we interviewed so many psychiatrists, psychologists that work with and community health people that said, we're glad we have these meds in our toolbox in those you know, crisis states, but just for short-term use to use conservatively, this thought of using them like we're now using them as a long-term solution, putting people on these meds that last a lifetime, there's big problems with that because as Robert Whitaker pointed out, the stats show that that re typically reduces a person's uh, longevity by 20 to 25 years. Right. Yeah. And I would say um, usually people who are coming to me are trying to find alternative ways to manage their symptoms to come off of their medication. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because they've been, they've either say, well, I've been on this antidepressant for 15 years, you know, and people are looking for other ways. And I think when people experience for the first time ritual or shamanic practice or grief ritual, you know, some of the stuff that we do at the Afterlife Awareness Conference, um, it is just, it, there's something that just resonates in a person's being that you can feel the healing happening. Mm. It's, it's a really different approach. Mm. Um, now, I know you're going to be at the Afterlife Awareness Conference this year. And for those listeners who are interested, Interested. Um, it, it may be virtual. The the plan was it was for it to happen again in June in Chicago, but everything is still on hold given the pandemic and travel. So most likely it will probably be held virtually. Um, but I know that you also incorporate a little bit of what you've learned and, you know, through your own studies and you bring in an element of the afterlife into your presentation. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, I guess it's how I look at the afterlife now after going through this. And I'll just say that, yes, I, I got into this world of shamanism through my human rights work, 
just by accident. I mean, first meeting the Dalai Lama's oracle who goes into trance and learned that he was identified by having a quote unquote psychosis in our terminology. Anyway, and then doing the film, meeting people like yourself um, in the field, treating uh, clinicians, treating people that go into these states. And, and that led to the film. And since the film, getting very, uh, interviewing more and more people, much like, I guess, like you've done, seeing a lot of people that go into these states. And especially I was interested in the people who had successfully navigated uh, a non-ordinary, what I like to call an extraordinary state of consciousness. And some of them did it on their own. Um, they just somehow learned how, look, let me get myself centered here. I didn't realize that. <laughs> uh, some of them did it on their own, but many of them um, were, uh, went through the mental health system and that made it even more difficult for them to go through this process because the medications had sort of truncated the process. Yeah, and interrupted it. So, uh, but since all that time, uh, what's really fascinated me lately is the neuroscientists that are doing studies on the brain and they've discovered a network in the brain that is responsible. This is just a very shortcut way of talking about it. It's more involved, but I'll try and do it justice. Uh, a, a network in the brain that is responsible for some abstract functions such as sense of time and sense of self. And first of all, many of the people, I'm sure you know this, that talk about these states they go into, time gets completely warped. They say like three minutes could seem like a whole day or like a whole day could seem like three minutes. And, and, um, the other thing that happens is sense of self gets disrupted in some way. We used to call these things identity crisis when I was a kid. And that sense of self seems to be part of a learned process that we go through from birth to our adulthood that teaches us that we are the subject and everything else in our in our universe are um, objects, and we are different uh, from those things, and we're separate from that. And especially in our culture, that's drilled in because we're a very individualistic culture. And part of getting used to or having a good death, as the Tibetans say is getting over that focus on self, reducing self-importance. And, you know, I, I would watch the Tibetans go through these rituals that either going into a cave for a year to meditate or prostrating on their way to a sacred object uh, for miles and miles and do it for months, sometimes years. And I asked them why. <laughs> What are you doing this for? And pretty much they said the enemies of enlightenment, the enemies of peace 
and, and, and serenity and bliss are self-grasping and self-cherishing. So to me, if I can add anything to the afterlife conference is that, that, um, that there is a peace and a reduction in suffering in any activity that takes you away from that concentration on ego and self. Wow, that's fascinating too. And yeah, I mean, that's that's what it reminds me of when you're talking about to become less identified with the self, the ego, right? We want to attach to this whole experience of life, you know, be attached to our things, our objects, the people, even the people that we love, right? We don't want to leave them. Our connections with each other. Right. And, and that's what's been shattered so badly, especially in our political state we've been through in the last several years that's been building up to this moment that just became so dramatic. But um, yeah, uh, attach and our care of the planet and all of these things have grown in the last 30 years, but we really have to concentrate on them and, and, and work in that direction. Yeah. If you think about all the, I, you know, I just started thinking about all the energy I've spent in my lifetime. So I'm 78 now. And all the years I've spent propping up my ego, defending it when it gets attacked, all that energy. I just thought if I had had all that energy <laughs> to devote to other things, how much I could have gotten done. Well, and the fact that you've gotten so much done with that energy is amazing. But I know what you're saying, right? It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I know you're doing beautiful work in the world with ego or without ego. <laughs> we'll see what happens maybe in your next 20 years of life here as you're moving more into this understanding. But I'm also curious, just because you're so well-traveled and you have you know, been in these indigenous cultures, is there a certain experience that you have had that you'd like to share with us, whether it be through a certain ceremony that you went through, I'm sure you've experienced many, um, and something that might have been really kind of life changing for you that might have helped something either within your own trauma, your own anxiety, your own depression, or what we would, you know, diagnose as, as a mental illness. And um, let's just say we're all crazy here, right? But um, I'm just curious to know if you have an experience through ceremony in any of the indigenous cultures that was really profound for you. You know, I, I really didn't get too much into the ceremony aspects uh, for myself. Um, I'm of a different culture and I felt I'd be kind of a fake trying to say, OK, I believe what you believe. And I was just an observer, but I did have an experience that really um, shook me and opened my eyes. Um, it, you know, I would typically tell the shaman I was interviewing that if they'd say, I want to do a ceremony for you, I would kind of discourage it because I had a bad experience in Mongolia around that, around a shaman that wanted to do an experience for me and his spirits or whatever didn't like it. And it went not well. Let's put it that way. So anyway, I was in Pakistan and I was with my 16 year old son at the time. And I uh, 
I took him because uh, it was summer and I really wanted him to get an exposure to some of the cultures I'd gone into. So I chose this little culture on the Afghan-Pakistan border called the Kalash. There's 3,000 Kalash people still there and they are animists. In other words, they, um, they believe in the spirits in everything, in, in the forest, in the mountains, in the animals. They worship their ancestors' spirits. And so they're very different than Islam, but they're surrounded by Islam. Anyway, we went there and we went up to meet a shaman uh, by the name of John Dooley Khan. He was a very important shaman with the Kalash people. And uh, he wanted to do a ceremony for me and or us. And he, and I tried to discourage him because I'd just been back from Mongolia and had that other experience. But he insisted, I have to do an ex uh, a ceremony for you. You've come so far. You're going to be doing more traveling. I must do this. And so he did it. And the shamans go into their alternate states with um, different means. Uh, in, in, it's mostly drumming in many cultures, like in Mongolia. In the Amazon, they use psychoactive plants. Um, so there's very, uh, in the Lakota tradition up in um, the northern uh, North America, they use the sun dance where they dance and 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 sing all night for four days and four nights without food or water to get themselves into that, that state. But in Pakistan, what they do is they take and start a fire of juniper branches, um, sacrificing an animal, pour the blood onto the branches, and the shaman breathes the smoke. So there was another reason I didn't want John Dooley Khan to do it, because he's going to have to sacrifice one of his animals. Anyway, he insisted, and the next morning he did it. And he was very talkative, telling me about his background and everything, how he became a shaman when I was talking with him. But after he went into that trance, we watched him go in. He went back into his room, his little hut, a little rock hut. And um, we didn't see him again. So I asked his sons, uh, who helped him with the ceremony, what he what happened? What 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 did he say? And they said the only thing he said is your journey will be very difficult. I mean, your journey will be very um, challenging, but you will be safe. Something along those lines. It was in their interpretation. Anyway, so my son and I left and walked down the mountain. It took us a day to get up to the mountain where he lived. And as we were going down, uh, Dax is my son's name. Dax got a, a very bad stomach issue and um, he was getting very weak. And I had hired a Jeep to and a driver to bring us further up into the Hindu Kush because there's other shamans along that that area up there, all the way up to Hunza, uh, where there's several up there as well. Anyway, he was getting weaker and weaker as we were taking this journey. And I thought, you know, he would get over it in a day. And, and I was giving him some hydration salts and that sort of thing, but nothing was working. 
And, and we were out in the middle of nowhere when he got so weak, he couldn't sit up in the car. And I, we passed a couple of little shacks and I just had the driver stop. I got Dax out of the car, put him under a tree, ran up to one of the shacks, banged on the door. And I don't know what I was hoping, maybe some local herb or something to help. But I was, I was in a panic. Anyway, a doctor answers the door and he's in a white smock and, and, and he speaks perfect English. It turns out he's a doctor from Islamabad visiting his mother just for the weekend or the week. And he happened to have an IV of glucose saline solution so we could hydrate that. He, we set up this bed out in the field in back of this shack and started the IV going. And within two hours, Dax was fine. And so, you know, you can easily say that was just a coincidence, but it really was so dramatic for me. And just coming from hearing those words of John Dulican, I thought, was there something? Did he step out of time? in some way to see this? Or did he, was he able to even control what would happen? Or maybe he just, or was this just a total coincidence? But anyway, that's one of the experiences I had yeah. that stayed with me. Yeah, well, it makes you wonder, right? Yeah, if, yep. if he was able to see that, was there anything too with being a healer or, or you know, a shaman that he was able to, line things up in complete beautiful synchronicity to make sure that your son was okay. Yeah. Wow. That's a mind blowing story. I'll just say one more thing about the ceremonies I've witnessed. I've witnessed um, some in Mongolia and in the Amazon um, many times in the Philippines as well. Many times what they tell the person, like if a, I, one was a woman that came in for a pregnancy issue, the shaman, which was a woman, had the woman um, make this little special thing out of cloth and take it to the mountain spirits. And I thought at the time, you know, what good is this? <laughs> <laughs> woman walk up to the mountain in her condition. Um, uh, in the Philippines, I can remember telling the father of a boy who was very sick to stop the slash and burning agricultural practice he was doing. He was angering the, um, the spirits of the forest. And, but, you know, I've come to learn what they were doing is reconnecting the person to their environment, reconnecting and remembering the importance of the environment and the importance of things outside of themselves. And um, so I've, you know, come to look at it in a whole different way to give it meaning. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the um, ceremonies that I've been in, it's either been uh, bringing whatever it is that you need to release to the spirit of water. Um, there's, you know, one, one culture where it recognizes the different elements and like the mineral kingdom, you know, mother earth, the great water spirits, fire, you know, and like, like you said, reconnecting with those elements of the land. Yeah. So yeah, that seems to be a consistent theme. 
Yeah, also fascinating, um, Phil. Thank you so much for being with us and just the work that you're doing. I really hi- highly recommend everyone to check out Crazy Wise. When I was going to rent it, there was a really cool option called Canopy. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Canopy is, I guess, connected with a lot of public libraries, and you can watch the documentary for free if your library uh, participates in this app. So that was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very well in the libraries on Canopy. Yeah. And in the universities as well. Yep. And uh, I think it's also available through Vimeo, which is where I found mm-hmm. it as well, and also on your website. Um, and well, why don't we bring your website up now? And it's is it just philborges.com? No, it's a crazywisefilm. Crazywisefilm.com. Okay. Crazywisefilm.com. Philborges.com um, is just my photography. And it, you can look at crazywise there as well. Okay, great. Yeah, we created a whole new website for Crazy Rides. That's right. I did click on that. It has its own its own thing. But you also have other projects. You have some other documentaries um, that are also coming, and you're also doing a lot with like the women's movement. I know that's probably like a whole other podcast for us to talk about that. We might have to have you on a couple times. Yeah, that's all on philborges.com. Okay. My, my other projects. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, and, and, you know, for our audience too, if you would like to see Phil's presentation, we have the 2019 afterlife awareness conference on path 11 TV. Again, you can sign up for a free seven day trial, or you can subscribe for the year, or you can subscribe monthly, but Phil's presentation is up there at the afterlife awareness conference. And, you know, we'll be filming 2021's conference and we'll eventually be putting that up on path 11 TV as well. But I really felt one of your presentations was kind of like that diamond in the rough. I had no idea who you were, you know, it's like, okay, who's this keynote speaker? And then it's like, bam, with all this beautiful imagery. And it was so interesting to me with the connection between the shamanism and the mental health. So I was hooked. As soon as I met you, I was hooked and so excited that we could get you on the podcast this year. So thank Uh, you so much. Thank you, April. Yeah, I'd love, I hope we can connect more and talk about your practice and how you work. And I'd love to talk to you more. So let's contact somehow. Okay. Yeah, sure thing. Would love that. Okay. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to uh, get more information about the Afterlife Awareness Conference for this year, 2021, you can head on over to their website. It's afterlifeconference.com. We will probably be announcing whether or not it will 100% be virtual or if we'll be moving uh, to Chicago and doing this in person. But you'll be able to see who the presenters are and you can sign up for the newsletter and get updates through Terry Daniel. And we'll probably have her on as well. And I really highly recommend again, checking out this documentary, going to Path 11 TV, watch films presentation from 2019. Uh, You guys will love it. So thank you, everyone. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Take care. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show. And don't forget to head on over to path11tv.com. Grab your annual membership for $59. Remember, that is 40% off the regular price. So I really want you to take advantage of our launch deal of $59. You get over 75 hours of content that we have on there. So head on over to path11tv.com. Take advantage of the annual membership. All right, guys, take care.